Good evening, everyone. I'm Allison Camerata. Welcome to CNN Tonight. We've got the inside story of what happened when Harry and Meghan were chased by paparazzi through the streets of New York last night. The taxi driver who was at the wheel is with us live to explain what Harry and Meghan were saying and doing during that ordeal. Plus, we all remember when Donald Trump claimed he could declassify documents just by thinking about it. Well, we have exclusive reporting tonight on the 16 records that show Trump and his top advisors did know how real declassification works. What does this mean for the ongoing investigation? Our panel is going to take that one on. And the license plates that are too lewd, even for New Jersey. We'll show you some clever spellings that try to trick the DMV. But let's begin with what happened to Prince Harry and Meghan Markle as they tried to leave a New York event last night. Their security calls it a dangerous game of cat and mouse with paparazzi running red lights and driving into oncoming traffic. A spokesman for the Duke and Duchess described it as a near catastrophic car chase with multiple near collisions. Of course, we all remember that's how his mother, Princess Diana, was killed. So here's what Harry told Anderson Cooper in January. The thing that's terrified me the most is history repeating itself. You really feared that your wife, Megan... Yes, I feared, I feared a lot that the end result, the fact that I lost my mum when I was 12 years old, could easily happen against my wife. We've got a special guest with us tonight. Uh, Shuk Charan Singh is the tribe taxi driver who picked up Harry and Meghan last night as they tried to get away from the swarming paparazzi. He's joining us live from the cab in which he was driving them last night, and we'll speak with him in just a minute. Um, he tells me to call him Sonny, so Sonny, stand by for a second. I want to bring in our other panelists. We have Ellie Honig, Richard Quest, Aaron Vanderhoof from Vanity Fair, and John Miller, who has new reporting on all of this. So, John, before we get to the point where Sonny picked them up in his taxi, what happened from the time they left the event where they were until they got into his taxi. So when they leave the event at the Ziegfeld, they get about to the corner on 55th Street, and they've got uh, a black car with blacked-out windows following them, a couple of other vehicles. And then when they get through the light, they notice there are spotters, there are scooters, there are e-bikes, there are motorcycles. So there's about 10 different things on four wheels and two wheels that are swarming around. The object of the game um, didn't seem to be to get more pictures of them. They're in a blacked-out SUV. You can't really see in there anyway. The object of the game seemed to be to conduct a surveillance that took them back to where they were going so where that the paparazzi could stay, uh, stake that out, you know, camp out there, and then be able to follow their every move. So they were trying to thwart that. And, yeah. and, and I mean, that goes literally, they go all the way uptown, can't shake them. They're trying to slow down. Now, they're not running red lights. They're not speeding. But these people are swarming around, blocking the front of the car, driving through red lights into oncoming traffic. At one point, when two of the SUVs in the motorcade didn't move while the car with the Duke and Duchess went, one of those paparazzi cars mounted the sidewalk, hit something, skirted the corner, came off the sidewalk, pedestrian scattering. Um, How long did this go on for? So this goes on for an hour and a half plus, until they finally say, we've been uptown, we've been downtown to 23rd Street, uptown to 96th Street, FDR Drive, 3rd Avenue, side streets, and we can't lose this pack. So Tommy Buddha, who is the guy running the motorcade on the private security side, former FBI, NYPD, JTTF detective, very competent guy, says, let's go somewhere safe, take a breather and make a plan. 
So they go to the 19th police precinct. That's where they shift to the taxi, but the spotters for the paparazzis end up following them. And then they go to plan C, which actually works. And they shifted to the taxi, John, to as a decoy to throw off the paparazzi? The idea would be the paparazzi were focused on the motorcade that was in place. And if they could slip them into a taxi that would then disappear at midnight into a sea of other taxis in Manhattan traffic, it might actually be the getaway because the place they were going actually wasn't far away. It was okay. a couple of blocks. Okay, so that's where Sonny, the taxi driver, comes in. So Sonny, the, the Prince Harry... And Meghan Markle and her mom get into your taxi. Did you know it was them immediately? And what did they tell you about what was happening? Uh, They didn't say much. It was their security guard who said where they were going, right? And as soon as he's about to say where they're going, all of a sudden, the paparazzi just stormed the taxi. And there's flashes coming from every direction. They're up against the car, just taking pictures and stuff like that, standing in front, you know. And then as we got stuck behind the garbage truck uh, as when the garbage truck moved they started following the cars in uh in behind us and how many paparazzi sonny uh, i saw six and did you, you feel know? that you were in danger no I, I didn't feel like i was in danger but you know uh, harry and megan they look very nervous what were they saying you know, they during were all of this? Well, like, how could you tell uh, they were when, scared? When the paparazzi started taking pictures, and one of the, I heard from the back, somebody said, oh, my God, you know? And then the look on their faces, you can tell that they were nervous and scared. And so they did they ever give you an address, or did they just say go? Uh, you know, they they never gave me an address. Right? They, the guy said go, and uh, he was just about to say that address, and uh, that's when the paparazzi just came out of nowhere and just started taking pictures. And did you know that they had already been chased for an hour plus? No, I did not know. No. So, so then what did you do? How far did you drive with them? So we went uh, from the precinct to like a block, and that's when we got surrounded by the paparazzis. And as soon as the garbage truck moved, we went up Madison, then back down Park, and then up Third, and back to the precinct. Did they have a bodyguard with them? Yes, the bodyguard was within the car. And what was he telling you to do? Uh, he was just telling me, hey, listen, make, uh, go back to the precinct, just circle back to the precinct. We're not going to lose these guys, you know? Yeah. Um, so was it ever a high-speed chase? No, not with me. I don't know what happened before or prior to me, but not with me, you know? Because every corner we turned, there was a red light. Um, yeah, I mean, that's, that, that, was the new, that was sort of what the mayor was alluding to. How could it be a high-speed chase in New York City? We wish that we could do a high-speed chase, but at times well, it was, right, John? So this was a never, never a high-speed chase because the motorcade had an NYPD element in it from the Intelligence Bureau. And the instructions were, we're not lights and sirens, we're not running lights, we're following traffic regulations, we're there as a protection detail. Now, the paparazzi... That was a different set of rules because they went high speed to catch up. There was a time on 34th Street where they were, you know, half a block behind the motorcade and they literally crossed the yellow lines, drove into oncoming traffic until they caught up and placed themselves back there. That was among 20 things that happened, you know, from 23rd Street to 96th Street as they tried to stay, you know, on their tail. Sonny, had you ever seen anything else like this in your years as, of driving a taxi? No, no. I've been driving now since 2018. This was the first time I saw this. 
you know, I had a little celebrities, but other celebrities never got that much attention from the paparazzis. That's interesting. And so does that give you <laughs> yeah. a sense? I mean, now today, with all the attention that this has gotten, does that surprise you? And does it give you a sense of what their lives must be like? Yeah, you can you can tell, right? He lost his mother, it was, you know, running away from the paparazzis as well. So you can tell they were nervous and scared in the car. Yeah. Um, did they? How much was the fare? Did they give you a good tip? <laughs> exactly. Uh, it was a. Good, they gave me a good tip. It was the fare was seventeen eighty. They gave me a fifty for fifteen minutes of work. <laughs> that is a good tip, right, right there, Sonny. Um, yeah, really good, really good. Yeah, yeah that's really good. Um, well, hold on. I, I know that some of my. Oh, we're losing you for a second, and we'll go right back to Sonny. So, Richard, they left England for this. I mean, they, they, that's why they left Britain, so that they could avoid this. Your yeah, thoughts? Well, well. They, yes, they did leave England for this, and then they promptly threw gasoline on the flames of this with the book, the interviews, the, 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 the repeated... But uh, Ellie and I have written books. Why We don't get chased around by paparazzi. Why, why just... OK, well, Ellie does. But, I mean, just because... Actually, I have to say, there's a joke in England, in Britain, um, in Private Eye magazine that always has uh, a taxi driver saying, I had that such-and-such in the back of my cab once. <laughs> and he can now say, I had that Prince Harry and Meghan in the back of my yes, cab once. Yes, he can, exactly. Look, yeah, but, they, but my point is, why do they deserve this? Just they, they don't were... deserve it. Nobody deserves it. You just get it because that's what goes with it. And it's up to the police to put in place a proper policing structure, which might involve saying to them, you can't do this engagement. We don't have the policing to give you closed roads, to give you outriders, to give you all these sort of things. But they can't do that because they're not part of the royal family anymore, right, John? Well, that's interesting because, you know, they would have been covered as representatives of the crown, as members of the royal family, as a diplomatic trip. Um, basically, they're private citizens now um, and not on a government mission here. But, you know, the first rule of risk management, um, as we were taught long ago, is predictable is preventable. When you have two people that you know are going to draw this kind of attention and this potentially this kind of mayhem, um, you put a police element in there just in the name of public safety. And that's why the NYPD was, along with the private security, the, the complicating factor is, as, as it was just said here by Richard, that, that's to protect them from threats that you would have against royals and, and people like that, uh, terrorists, stalkers, uh, yeah. you know, assassins, the normal threats. When you're surrounded by, you know, um, this swarm of press um, that are literally slowing you down, blocking you at intersections, then trying to catch up to you, if there is a real threat... Getting off the X is that much harder. Yeah. Um, Aaron, it's interesting to hear Sonny say that he's, he's um, transported celebrities before, but he's never seen anything like this. It's, it's just, I think it's really hard for us in the U.S. to understand the scale of the interest that still exists in the U.K. for them. Once we, uh, in the month of February, Megan made no public appearances, and we kind of, as a, you know, a, a journalistic exercise, decided to count the number of stories that the Daily Mail ran on her. No, never spotted in public at any point in time more than 100 stories. And some of them were just like, you know, they're just things that happened, like something from her blog from 2014 that was repeated four times. And it's just at a certain point, you know, they they... They understand now that they can't really get rid of that interest, but I think that they're trying to do their hardest to, you know, I think that they've been using 
shame tactics. They've been using legal tactics to try to discourage some of this. And so I think that that's why this became public in the first place is because people started running those photos and they were thinking, okay, we don't want them to be running these photos. We don't want the people who are making our lives miserable last night to make the money off of it. And after sharing the story, the Daily Mail and the Express took those photos down. See, Richard, even when they lay low, the paparazzi follows them around, even when they don't make public appearances. Right. So now bring in our good friend here. How do you stop? The paparazzi who will claim their First Amendment rights to take these pictures, provided they're not breaking the law, which they were last night. But even if they're not breaking the law, they're still a bloody nuisance and they're still everywhere. So how do you balance the paparazzi's right to sit outside their home with their right of privacy? Yeah, it's a great question. It's, It's a tension between our First Amendment, which does largely protect the rights of paparazzi to be annoying. But you can't break the law. Being a bloody nuisance is not a technical crime in America. Um, but you can't break the law and, and get away with it. I do want to quickly say, Sonny, let, let's like big props to Sonny because he is the best of New York City cab drivers. So many are great like him. He's unflappable. Everyone else is freaking out in the cab. He's like, whatever, it was just another fare. So God bless. Oh, he's still there. God bless you, Sonny. I know we got to let Sonny go. I think the meter's running. <laughs> I hear it. I hear it. How much is this costing us, Sonny, right now? I drop, don't worry. I drop off the receipt after I'm done. Wow. I figure. That makes, that makes a lot of sense. Um, well, Sonny, thank you. We really appreciate you. Thanks for taking the time out of your night to tell us what happened. All right, be careful out there. Have a good night, you guys. Take care. Okay, thanks. Hang on, I wanted to book him to take me home. (laughs) (laughs) I'm sure he's right outside. He's still listening. Oh, that's great. All right, thank you all very much. Okay, next we have a CNN exclusive. The National Archives plans to give the special counsel 16 records that sources say reveal that former President Trump and his advisors knew the real process for declassifying documents, and it was not waving a magic wand. Fantastic. All right, tonight we have a CNN exclusive. Multiple sources say the National Archives will hand over 16 records to special counsel Jack Smith in the Mar-a-Lago classified document case. Those records reportedly show that Donald Trump and his advisors knew the correct declassification process, but as we know, they did not use it. The records may provide critical evidence for establishing President Trump's awareness, which is a key part of the criminal investigation. Let's bring in our special panel. We have legal genius, Ellie Honig. We also have with us Gail Huff-Brown, former Boston News reporter and New Hampshire congressional candidate. Jay Michelson is back, Rolling Stone columnist and rabbi who clerked for Merrick Garland. And law enforcement superhero, John Miller, stays on. Wow, I got promoted. Not all heroes wear capes. Um, Okay, so uh, Ellie, 16 records. Are those emails? What are those? Yeah, so we don't know exactly what they are. We know there are 16 documents. They could be multiple pages. But here's what's most important about this story. It goes to Donald Trump's intent. What did he know? Did he know what he was doing is wrong? Now, you may say, of course, obviously, but you have to prove it as a prosecutor. And what this proves is that the White House was formally told 16 times during Trump's presidency, hey, if you're going to declassify records, this is how you do it. He did not do any of those things. There's no record that he did any of that regarding the Mar-a-Lago documents. Hence, he knew they were classified when he took them. Hence, that goes to his intent. So are you extrapolating that these are from the National Archives, like a, a correspondence of some kind with the Trump White House? That's what... You- yes, I'm not extrapolating. I know that. I mean, I, that. I talked to Jamie Gangel, who reported oh, fantastic. it. They, these are letters that the archives oh, sent over to the Trump White House while Trump was in office saying, 
You all have the right and the power to declassify. If you are going to use that, here's how you do it. Got it. Okay, so what does this mean for the case, Jay? So obviously, I think we're feeling a lot of, everyone's feeling Trump fatigue. Uh, sort of, certainly progressives may be worrying that the more the legal cases mount against Donald Trump, the higher his standing, standing goes. But, you know, I feel like this is clearly an important disclosure. And this is an important bit of information, again, for, for his intent. And I think it might be better to be on the side of the rule of law, regardless of the political consequences. This is an extremely troubling development. Obviously, Donald Trump knew that there was no such thing as automatic declassification because he made it up. So when you make something up, you know that. But exa- exactly as Ellie said, I mean, this is the smoking gun on the level of intent that the claim that this is like, well, I didn't know, or I thought this was, there's this made up thing, make believe, the make believe doesn't fly. We have the emails. So, um, Gail, this was brought up during the CNN, the recent CNN town hall. Um, Caitlin Collins Mm -hmm. asked Donald Trump about it. So let's listen to his response. Why did you take those documents with you when you left the White House? I had every right to under the Presidential Records Act. You have the Presidential Records Act. I was there and I took what I took and it gets declassified. Do you still have any classified documents in your possession? Are you ready? Do you? No, no, I don't have anything. I have no classified documents. And by the way, they become automatically declassified when I took them. Your thoughts on all this? Well, here's exactly what I think about this. You have to apply the law evenly. Uh, We know that President Joe Biden had classified documents as well. They were in his garage. We know that Vice President Pence had classified documents as well. So I'd like to know what's in all of the documents. I'd like to see that. That's the journalist in me. But also, I want to make sure that the law is being applied across the board and not just singling out President Trump. But does it change in your mind the fact that, from what we can tell from the reporting, that President Biden and Vice President Pence handed over, as soon as they were discovered, they handed over the classified documents as opposed to, for a year, sort of fighting with the National Archives about it, which is the reporting about what happened. But we still never saw what was in the documents. We still never saw, I mean, did you ever see what was in those documents? I'd like to. Exactly. And that's my point. I mean, I think that if we're going to have full disclosure and if he's going to face any charges as a result of this, it's only fair that they be open to the public and there be full transparency. Why? What does that have to do with anything? I mean, they're either classified or they're not classified. Their content, and by the way, the whole purpose of them being classified is to keep that secret. Where does the idea of, well, we'll review the documents as the general public and the press and we'll decide independently whether they're classified or not? No, they're classified or they're not. And as far as anybody can tell, since you can't imagine their declassification away, as president or former president, they're classified until you tell the document owner, I, as the president of the United States and the chief declassifier or classifier of the U.S. government, am declassifying that. You can't exist in a world where he says the ones at his house aren't classified, but the ones that are still on file at the CIA and the NSA and the DIA and the NGO are classified. You have to declassify them within the government system with an official written order that goes to the holders of the documents, the creators, who made them classified in the first place. This entire discussion from the, the, the former president's lawyers about they were, they weren't, he thought they were, he could have, he didn't, it's all hooey. I don't know why but we're still talking about it. How is that different from Hui, the classified... that's a legal term, by exactly. the way. Exactly. How is that different from the classified documents that were found in President Biden's? There's only a giant difference, which is they said, do you have any documents? They said, go look. They found it. What President Biden did not say is, oh, 
well, I actually am the president, so I'm declassifying them, so there's no problem. He said, look in my house here. Look in my house in Rehoboth. Go through all the boxes. He was a vice president at the time that those right. documents were taken and, home. And, and he wasn't a, the president of the United States. And that's a fair States. point. It applies to Pence, too. But the difference is the Trump case comes in two important points. One is, what did he take? Why did he take it? Why did he have it? Did he show it to anybody? What did he say? Not really. You know what that means. The second thing is the obstruction piece, which is when they were asked for them, when they were subpoenaed, when they were searched for, when they denied that they had them, when they said they'd looked and they weren't there, and then when the search weren't revealed that not only were they there, but the videotapes from the security cameras actually showed them being moved by staffers at Mar-a-Lago, who probably shouldn't have had access to classified material in the first place, during the time they were saying that these documents didn't exist, it kind of stacks up to be a more complicated picture than did Joe Biden have some classified document that ended up mixed in with other papers when he was on the Foreign Relations yeah. Committee? Let's be clear. Nobody should be bringing home classified documents. Nobody. My husband is top-ranked military, Pentagon, former U.S. ambassador, U.S. senator, never took home classified papers. I mean, nobody should be doing it. Absolutely. Absolutely. But the cure to that is not to say, well, let's open them all to the public and then we'll, well all decide whether they should be secret. I mean, but to Gail's point, um, we do talk a lot about the process and the process is important, but... What what were these that Donald Trump had at Mar-a-Lago? I mean, I know we'll right, never see them because is, if they're top secret, we won't see them. But it is interesting. This because, is the frustrating part, yeah. right? On the one hand, right, these are properly classified documents. On the other hand, what was so important that he took these documents, hid the documents, lied about the documents? And, and Gail, I mean, surely there are two distinct offenses here, right? One is having these documents. And absolutely, the law should apply evenly to Biden, to Pence, to Trump. But the other is lying about it, right? There's the, the crime and then there's the cover-up. And this is the cover-up. That's the obstruction of justice that's piece. And that's piece. the most important part. I mean, whether it was inadvertent on Biden or Pence's part, I don't know. But at least there wasn't this attempt to cover up the truth. So to try to, try to put a button on this, I think we're all somewhat in agreement on this. I think you're right, Gail. You have to ask more questions here. But the touchstone for prosecutors is going to be knowledge and intent. Did the person, Trump, Biden, Pence, first of all, know those documents were there? And can you prove it? If the person had no idea, if they were just moved with a massive of things, you can't prove knowledge, you're not going to have a case. But if you can prove the person knew those documents were there, Trump has acknowledged he knew they were there. So you have that as a prosecutor. That's part one. And then number two is intent, which we started with. Did they know what they were doing was wrong? And that's going to be fact intensive. All of these cases need to be thoroughly investigated. But I think that's ultimately the proving ground. Ellie, thank you very much. Great conversation. Thank you all. Uh, Meanwhile, there are five women in the South Carolina Senate. That's it. And they have all banded together to fight the near total abortion ban that's making its way through their state legislature. That may not be surprising, but the majority of these women are Republican. And we're going to talk to them next. An unexpected alliance in the fight for abortion rights. The sister senators, as they call themselves, are five lawmakers in the South Carolina State Senate. Three Republicans banded together with a Democrat and an independent to stop the Republican supermajority from passing an almost total abortion ban in that state. Three times in eight months, Republican leaders tried to ban abortion beginning at conception, and three times the sister senators blocked it. Once a woman became pregnant for any reason, she would now become property of the state of South Carolina. Abortion laws have always been, each and every one of them, about control. 
We the women have not asked for, as the Senator from Orangeburg pointed out yesterday, nor do we want your protection. We don't need it. The South Carolina House is debating a six-week abortion ban. This is a special legislative session called for by Governor Henry McMaster, who is determined to strike down the current 22-week abortion law. Joining us now are two of the sister senators, Republicans Katrina Shealy and Sandy Sen. Ladies, thank you very much for being here. Uh, really appreciate your time. So, uh, Senator Shealy, um, your colleagues, your Republican colleagues, seem determined to continue to try to come up with a more restrictive abortion law for your state. What happens if this passes this week in the House? Well, I do look for it to pass this week, unfortunately. And what will happen is it will come to us in the Senate next Tuesday or when we do the budget uh, next week. We'll get it on the Senate floor. And I hope that we have enough members still with us in the Senate to do something about it. But if we don't, you know, it will pass. It'll go to the Supreme Court, I feel sure. But um, what I'm hoping is we can filibuster it. Maybe we'll filibuster it to death. You know, we've done that before. So I'm, I hope we can either do that or, you know, if it if we don't have enough people to stand with this, the sister senators aren't changing their stance. But the House, when they took it back over, they made 15 changes to our bill. And I promised them if they change so much as a semicolon, I would not vote with them. And they change way more than a semicolon. Um, so um, yeah. that's where we are right now. And, and Senator Shilley, just to follow up, why do you feel so strongly about this? I mean, obviously, you've broken with the Republican Party. It's so rare nowadays to see two Republican senators, state senators like yourselves in a deep red state breaking with the party. So why do you feel so strongly about this? Well, First of all, you know, I think women should have some rights over their own body. I mean, you know, we don't get to choose anything as far as going to the doctor when we're pregnant or, you know, South Carolina has become a gynecological desert. And uh, we have 15 counties in the state of South Carolina out of 46 that don't even have a gynecologist. And we, what we're doing is we're running off good doctors. We don't look at what we're doing here. And South Carolina's got to start standing up for our women for a change. And this was necessary for me to do. Although, you know, I'm not even really comfortable with six weeks, but I'm not comfortable with 22 weeks. And I don't think anybody goes out on a date on Friday night and says, ooh, I'm going to get pregnant tonight so I can go have an abortion next week. I think that, you know, it becomes a necessity if you're at 22 weeks. There's either, a, you know, health of the mother or a fatal fetal anomaly. I think, you know, that's extreme. But I think, you know, the um, Republican women had a 12-week bill. We had a, a first trimester bill, and the Senate wouldn't even let us bring that forward. They said, no, a woman can't bring that we got to have a man introduce that bill. So there's something wrong here that, you know, we're not strong. They don't think the women are strong enough to introduce legislation to do with women's health and women's bodies. Tell us about the pushback that you've been getting from other Republicans, from um, your male colleagues. Right. Well, first, let, let me let you know, if we had three male colleagues stand with us, and that's how we were able to, to block these other attempts. But we do have to come to some consensus. And I honestly believe if they just let, there are only five women in the, in the Senate, 
and there's only 14% of women total. Um, if they just let us decide this thing, we'd be at first trimester and, and be done with it. But they insist on a total abortion ban. And we're definitely getting pushback. My own leader told a group of reporters that he would have an answer for me in 2024. So he's coming for me and that, you know, that's okay. Um, I, you know, I am definitely going to, going to be running and running full steam now. So uh, he, he's going to have to bring it. I was going to ask you about that, Senator Sen, because I know that you have been called vile names. I know you've been sent vile props. Um, I mean, I think they, that we have a picture of you holding them up um, on the floor, uh, the state house floor. Um, it's basically, um, I think, you know, anti-abortion groups sent you the spine of a plastic right. a spine. model of a spine it's like of a, a baby. Yeah. And yes, so, we all we all got it. Yeah, yeah, we all got that. But, you know, um, I will tell you that most of the words to me have been uplifting. There have been a few that call us baby killers. We're going to hell and all of this kind of stuff. Um, and, you know, I just let that kind of stuff run like water off a duck's back. Republican voters do not agree with what our own lawmakers are doing. But that's exactly why the males, the overwhelming male legislature, will refuse to put it on a referendum. They will have no part of that because they know they will lose. Well, Senator Shilly and Sen, thank you for your time. Thank you for explaining all of this. Obviously, we'll be watching very closely what happens in South thank Carolina. You so much. Thank you much. Appreciate you having us. Appreciate you too. So, Gail, I know that you were listening closely. I mean, you are a Republican woman. You ran for office. What do you think of them breaking with party ranks? I think it's very brave of them. I think it's also very difficult. I um, actually ran an ad in New Hampshire um, talking about choice. I, I'm one of those rare women that actually had a choice. At 20 weeks, I went into labor. I was in the emergency room, and the doctor said, do you want to save the baby's life or yours? Well, I made a choice to save my baby's life, and fortunately, with great medical care, we were both saved. But, you know, when you're in that situation, it's not a philosophical debate. But I made that choice. The government didn't make the choice. Other people, not the doctor, I made it. And that's what's important to me. Yeah, absolutely. And so, but yet you do believe you did support the repeal of Roe versus Wade. I did. Yeah, I do believe that it should be up to the states. It's up to the states to decide what they want to do. What's right for Texans may not be right for New Hampshire folks. I mean, every state can make their own laws. I don't support a ban on abortion. I will tell you that. I think that that's absurd. Um, women have the right to, to make decisions about their own bodies. Thanks for sharing that personal story. Really helpful. All right, stick around because Daniel Penny, now charged with manslaughter for the subway chokehold death. The case has yet to go to trial, but Nikki Haley is already calling for a pardon. We'll talk about that next. GOP presidential candidate Nikki Haley is the latest Republican to publicly support Daniel Penny who's charged with manslaughter in the New York City subway chokehold death. Haley's calling on New York Governor Kathy Hochul to pardon Penny. He saw danger. He was trying to protect himself and the other people on that subway. And the idea that Bragg would go and indict him this way without an investigation, without any sort of grand jury, really what I think needs to happen, the governor needs to pardon Penny. No question about it. She needs to pardon him right away. It's the right thing to do. She's not alone. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, who's also expected to seek the GOP nomination, calls Penny a good Samaritan who should not be prosecuted. I'm back with my panel. 
Ellie, Gail, Jay, and John. Ellie, can somebody be pardoned before they're convicted? So first of all, we're talking about New York state law here. So this is not the realm of the president. That's a federal case. This is not a federal case. The answer under federal law is yes, you can be pardoned before you've been convicted. We've seen examples of that. Most famously, Richard Nixon pardoned without ever even being charged, never mind convicted. Under New York state law, however, it's a little different. You can only pardon a person after they've been convicted. One other thing that I have to correct from Nikki Haley there. Uh, Mr. Penny has not been indicted yet. He has been charged by complaint from the prosecutor. The necessary next step, which will happen really tomorrow or Friday, unless the defendant agrees to lengthen it out, is the prosecutor has to go in front of a grand jury, present the evidence. And if the grand jury, by a majority, finds probable cause, low standard, but probable cause, then he will be indicted. But it's not even certain in my mind that he will be indicted. That's the next step. Okay. Can we, like, zoom back maybe a little bit? So this is extremely helpful, right? But also, the bigger picture here is that politicians are asking to completely subvert the rule of law, in addition to, in a technical sense, go against what the New York, uh, you know, what the New York law says, but also to say, we're not even going to have an, we shouldn't have an investigation. We shouldn't have a trial. I've decided. I've made up my mind. This is what authoritarianism <laughs> looks like. We, this, this, is, this is a close legal case, right? And I tried to imagine what it would be like if I were on the other ideological side. So suppose there were an LGBT activist who was defending themselves against somebody who was attacking them physically and accidentally killed them or negligently killed them or recklessly applied a, a fatal chokehold when they shouldn't have done that. I would absolutely support the criminal process unfolding in the way that it should. And if, it, if there's some extenuating circumstances that are so unusual as to merit a pardon, that comes at the end of the process. The idea that we should short circuit the rule of law. I don't want to drop the F-bomb here, you know, the Thank fascist you. word <laughs> thing. You know, I don't want to say that maybe, but this is contrary to the rule of law. This is what America stands for, that we have a justice system, we have a judicial system, and there is due process of law that everybody should be applied equally to everybody. And it is astonishing to me that there's a near consensus that we should just do away with the rule of law because we have a particular view about what happened. John? I mean, we've seen this movie before in a very different form with Bernhard Goetz back in 1985. Um, That was a case where he went to jail. But he didn't go to jail for shooting the people he shot who he said were trying to rob him on the subway. He went to jail for illegal possession of a firearm where he got that one-year sentence. So in a case like that, it was all about what was in Bernie Goetz's mind um, at the time. In this case, there's going to be two bites at that apple. Number one, Daniel Penny might testify. Now, to do this, he has to waive immunity. uh, But he might testify in that grand jury and say, This is what was going through my mind. I had no idea that my actions were going to kill him, nor was that my intent. Uh, As Ellie said, he could not get indicted. Uh, The other solution is he gets indicted and he goes to trial. And the reason I call that a solution is the grand jury's secret. We're not going to know what happened in there. But the trial will be public. And in a case where there's so much passion, so many opinions, um, so much controversy, it might be better to see it unfold in a public forum so everybody understands the outcome. Gail, your thoughts? I agree. I think there's some political theater going on here. No question about that. We need to have a jury of peers. You know, look at the... We have plenty of witnesses, plenty of people who were there and saw exactly what happened. We need to hear from them to determine what happens here. I would like to say, though, uh, that this does point out again that uh, defunding the police is a problem. Um, People are starting to take things into their own hands out of fear and... 
that's a problem in our communities, our subways, our streets. We have to make sure that our law enforcement have the resources they need so that, um, you know, we don't have people ste- stepping up. Not that there would have been a police officer on that particular subway car, Yeah, I mean, it's hard car, to have a, right? a, a police officer on every subway car. Yes, Ellie? Did you have yeah, a I just think, look, this is the ultimate case of let's let the system play out. Let's let the process play out. I think we've, we've sort of all agree on that. This is a complicated fa- case. It's a nuanced case. And let's let the grand jury do its work. Let's let the jury do its work. Got it. Thank you all. All right. Have you ever wanted a vanity plate for your car? Well, some New Jerseyans do, and they apply for one, and they have some creative ways to have obscene license plates. Only in New Jersey, Ellie. Um, Ellie's from New Jersey. I'm not responsible. Let's find out what his vanity plate is. I'll take it. Let's find out what Jay's vanity plate is coming up. Thanks. Ass man. No, oh, no, these don't belong to me. I'm, uh, I'm not the ass man. I think there's been a mistake. What's your name again? Cosmo Kramer. Cosmo Kramer. You are the ass man. No, I'm not the ass man. Well, well as far as the state of New York is concerned, you are. <laughs> I don't know why Kramer wouldn't have wanted the ass man vanity license plate in that Seinfeld clip. Plenty of drivers in New Jersey request racy plates that they try to get by the DMV. I'm back with my Jersey boys, Ellie and Jay here. Okay, there's a few that I can show you guys. Okay, this one was denied. I don't understand. Why is felon? Why is felon? (laughs) I denied. That's a cool plate. I mean, I don't. Okay, so like a the, legal the misrepresentation who, thing? No, this is an outrage. The person Why? who applied for this license yeah. plate and was denied, hire me. I will represent you. Yes. We will sue my home state of New Jersey. Yeah, because you should What's be able to, that? You should be able to drive around calling yourself a felon. Chris is kind of like asking to be pulled over a few extra times. <laughs> yeah, that, like, that's a good plot boxing <laughs> yeah. in the car. I mean, you might you be got dumb, on the plates, you know. Yeah, true, okay. True. How about, what do you guys think of this one? This one somehow didn't get by, didn't <laughs> get by the DMV. They tried with lowercase. Are they zeros? Maybe? Oh, oh maybe zeros. Uh, you got they the letter z- of the law, not the spirit on that one. <laughs> oh, I see. That's right. Maybe they put in zeros to try to get by, but they're... they're people like, need to be a little bit more creative, right? You don't so think booty's creative? We need creative? to use with some t- slang, which people don't know as slang. So I did some research oh, go ahead. of some slang. Please. Gooning is apparently a term that nobody knows what that means. But except it's for dirty? my friends. Oh, it's very dirty. There's a whole language that was invented in 19th century by 19th century gay men involving words like charver and cart. I did some research for this. I can see that. You can put these words on your license plate and you'll get Ellie's facial expression. <laughs> nobody will have any idea Listen, what you're actually talking about. I am about. a free stater. Whatever you want. If it's seven letters or whatever, I think go for it. Um, you do? You think you can put anything on there? Well, no. I, 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 guess, I, I guess I would have maybe 10 words, I would say, are off limits. But uh, okay, booty with, with two zeros? Yeah, you're fine. I agree. Okay, God bless. We've got we to go. Thank you for that. Any 19th century driver driving around will <laughs> see. I'm happy to bring chariots. glory to the Thank masses. You. That's my mission on this show. Thank you very much. Yeah. All right, coming up, some of our top reporters are here to talk about the stories that they're working on for tomorrow, including why there's a shouting match on Capitol Hill today and what George Santos had to do with it. All of their reporting next. Hi, everyone. Thanks for tuning in to this hour where we bring you tomorrow's news tonight. We have a great lineup of reporters here with me. We have Harry Enten, Shimon Prokupes, 
Jeremy Diamond, first time on the couch, and Elena Train is back. Great to have all of you. Okay, so today the House voted on a resolution to refer George Santos, the um, truth challenged congressman, to the <laughs> Ethics Committee. After the vote, though, a shouting match erupted on the steps of Congress. I'm not speaking about investigation. Yes, sir. Uh, no, I did not. I allowed the I allowed the process to play itself out. Party has to kick him out. He's embarrassing y'all. He's embarrassing y'all. Biden. If he's running for what, you got to get him out. Expel him. You got to expel. Save the party. The party's hanging by a thread. We got to get rid of Biden. The party is hanging. The party's hanging by a thread. You got to save the party. Impeach Biden. No more QAnon. Elena is here to fill us in. It's so great to see them setting such a good example for the kids at home. I know. I mean, absolute chaos at the Capitol today. And really, I mean, it was a crazy day for anyone who's been following this whole Santos saga. So earlier this week, a Democratic congressman introduced a a resolution to expel Santos from Congress following the Justice Department issuing a federal indictment against him with 13 charges. Some of them were money laundering, wire fraud, uh, continuously making false statements to the House, which I'm sure everyone has read time and time again about. Um, And then House Republicans said, we don't really want to do that. We're going to buy ourselves some time and try to push this off and have referred this resolution to the House Ethics Committee and have them take it up first. And so that's kind of what played out today. But I have to say through all of this, George Santos is loving the media attention. He's not backing away from the fight. He also was interviewed by CNN Manu, uh, CNN's Manu Raju on the Capitol steps earlier today and said he does not plan to resign. I think we have that soundbite. Let's listen. Why are your 145,000 voters, why are they served, wouldn't they be served better if you were to resign, given that you're facing investigations from the Ethics Committee, you have multiple charges, federal charges, felonies that you're facing, you don't sit on any committees, how are they better served with you being here in Congress? Again, Manu, I was elected by them to come represent them. I will continue to do that. I have not not done my job since I've gotten here. Now, clearly he's saying he does not plan to resign, even though I will say a lot of his Republican colleagues shun him in the halls of Congress. I mean, I talk to them a lot. None of them are very vocal about supporting him. And many have also said they want him to resign. Even before the Justice Department issued all of these charges against him, people were very wary about So could they have voted him out? I mean, they're referring it, as you say, to the Ethics Committee. Could they just have taken a vote? They could have. Um, The thing, though, is that I do think, and this was a calculation on Kevin McCarthy's part, they don't want to lose a Republican member of Congress. They have a very narrow majority. They can't have, they don't want to have another potential special election to replace him and a Democrat could take his seat. And so they kind of have to stick with him for now. But, I mean, the optics around George Santos are not good for the Republican Party either. And that's something that a lot of Republicans are worried about. Yeah, I mean, this is raw politics, right? Uh, Kevin McCarthy has a four-seat majority and particularly as he's heading towards these, uh, this debt ceiling showdown, which if he compromises, as is he is likely going to need to do if he wants to avoid defaults, uh, there is a risk to his speakership. There is a possibility there that he gets challenged by the far-right members of his caucus who don't want him to do that, who number more than four uh, already, and they certainly number more than three. And so for Kevin McCarthy, every single vote matters. And I also think what's interesting is, you know, Elena was talking about the Republicans who have been calling on him to resign. 
Most of those are New York Republicans. They are his fellow Biden uh, district Republicans, Republicans whose districts voted for Biden in 2020 and then elected them to Congress in 2020. So what's going to happen now with this? What happens next? Well, it's going to the ethics How committee. Long will that take? Apparently, they were giving him around 60, uh, the committee, 60 days to do this, um, which is a short time frame for the House Eth- Ethics Committee. And I do think people are very eager to make sure they do keep it to a tight In terms timeline. of the, the New York political scene right now, they expect this to happen quickly. I spoke to someone tonight uh, in, on, on the Demo- Democrat side who said that they actually think this is going to happen fairly quickly. Uh, and, you know, now it's going to be their need to gear up for potentially a, a special election. And there's a lot going on behind the scenes. But they're expecting it to happen um, fairly quickly. The thing is that may have been slowing some of this down was the federal investigation. It's not uncommon for the FBI for the DOJ to tell the ethics committee to say, you know what, slow down, let us do our part. And it could explain why perhaps DOJ moved. Some people thought quickly here. But why can't they happen in parallel? Because what happens is they don't want them to interfere in anything that DOJ may be doing. Some of the same witnesses, because when you look at the ethics charges or the complaint on the ethics stuff, it's similar to what these charges that the DOJ just brought, lying in uh, the allegations of lying. And financial stuff. Financial stuff. So all of it is there. So they now have that information even more based off of the complaint from the Department of Justice. So it's there for them. They just need to move on it. I mean, just from the pure politics, which is my lane, uh, I'll note, you know, as Jeremy was saying, look, this is a district Biden won by eight points. You look at the special elections that have occurred this year, you see Democrats actually outperforming the Biden baseline in the different state legislative and federal uh, congressional special elections. So that's going through the mind. And I think it's so funny when Santos says, well, the voters elected me and I'm here to represent them. Yeah, north of 70 percent of those same voters want him to resign. So he's not on the side of the voters. He's on the side of George Santos and is going to say whatever he needs to say to keep his political career alive, even if it is dying a slow death. Look, he's running for re-election, too. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, Don't so count I mean, the man what, out yet. But what some of his voters <laughs> say is that they elected him on false pretenses. Exactly. They didn't know his real resume. But let's talk about what um, the CNN exclusive reporting also came out today. And that is the um, records that the National Archives has that they say proves that or reveals, I guess, um, that Donald Trump and his top advisors did know the correct declassification system for those document, top secret documents that he had at Mar-a-Lago. So what now? Well... Yeah, so these are 16 documents that I will say also the Justice Department subpoenaed Donald Trump and his team for. They have yet to turn them over. And now the National Archives, according to our reporting, are told Trump's team we're turning them over to the special counsel looking at the classified documents case. Um, And it's still unclear what's in these documents. But the thing that we do know is that it shows that, like you said, they know that it shows that Trump might have known what the classification process was while in office. And that really speaks to his intent. And I think that's the key thing here that the special counsel, Jack Smith, is going to be looking at is, did you know when you were in office what the declassification process was like? And did you then know that you were taking these classified documents Mm -hmm. home with you? Uh, CNN's Caitlin Collins asked Donald Trump about this at the town hall last week. Uh, he continues to say that he can just declassify documents by thinking about it. But she did press him on this at that town hall. Let's listen to what she had to say. Why did you take those documents with you when you left the White House? I had every right to under the Presidential Records Act. You have the Presidential Records Act. I was there and I took what I took and it gets declassified. Do you still have any classified documents in your possession? Are you ready? 
Do you? No, no, I don't have anything. I have no classified documents. And by the way, they become automatically declassified when I took them. So this is very messy. Now, I did also, I talked to some people um, close to Trump's legal team, and they were saying they're going to try to fight this in court, or they may try to challenge it in court. It's unclear. But one issue that they have had throughout this entire case is anytime they have thought about mounting a legal challenge about these types of documents, they end up in the hands of the special counsel already. And so they're worried that that could happen this time. But it is something that they're arguing that they think they could put up a legal fight. So in other words, they are going to fight the National Archives from handing. They think that they have control over what the National Archives hands to the special counsel. Yes. That's the other thing in all of this, if I think about what's going on with the special counsel investigation, is the obstruction investigation, mm-hmm. right? And so if they can establish the fact that he knew that this was classified, and so therefore he knew potentially um, he was he had material that perhaps he shouldn't have, that it was a crime, and so then he was obstructing, obviously, the investigation and their ability to get um, these documents. And I think in the end, it's potentially the obstruction. I mean, you, everyone you talk to that's close to the former president and other you know, legal folks and, and other folks who have been following this much closer than I have, but everyone is saying the obstruction. Because in the last hour, what, we were just talking about how they, they also found classified documents in Vice President right, Biden. But they gave it up. Right? Right? And this I mean, speaks yes. to the very distinction between those two cases, yeah. right? Right. And I, and I think that's the whole point of this is what the National Archives, like, yes, the fact that he had Okay, yes, he had classified documents, but the fact that, like, when they went to try and get this information and he wouldn't give it up and it just continued and continued, and then there are allegations that, you know, was he moving things around? Was he, mm-hmm. you know, there have been all these stories written about the fact that they were trying to hide that we they just had. don't know and that. he was subpoenaed. I don't, right, I don't I mean, know. The, Donald Trump yeah. was subpoenaed for these documents. The National Archives had requested them. He refused to turn them over. And that's the key difference between Joe Biden now President Joe Biden, then Vice President, and former Vice President Mike Pence, when they knew that they had these classified documents in their possession or were asked to turn them over, they did. And that's the key distinction that the Justice Department is making. All right, Elena, thank you for bringing us up to speed on all of this and letting us know what happens next. Okay, meanwhile, President Biden says he and Kevin McCarthy will make a deal on the debt ceiling because there's no alternative. So what's going on behind closed doors? Jeremy is checking his phone right now so that he will tell us what his sources say next. (laughs) All right, the clock is still ticking on hitting the debt ceiling. President Biden is still confident that a deal with Republicans can be reached. We're going to come together because there's no alternative to do the right thing for the country. To be clear, this negotiation is about the outlines of what the budget will look like, not about whether or not we're going to, in fact, pay our debts. We're going to continue these discussions with congressional leaders in the coming days until we reach an agreement, and I'll have more to say about that on Sunday. Okay, Jeremy has the inside scoop for us. So, Jeremy, you have reporting of what's going on inside the room with yes, Speaker McCarthy and we President love Biden. that, right? Yes, inside peel back the, the curtain. Let's get inside. Yes. Um, listen, what's interesting about this is we have about two weeks until the U.S. could potentially default. And yet, coming out of this second meeting between the president and the congressional leaders, everybody said they felt like it was productive. Everybody said that they felt like they were seeing some progress Great. in the talks. Now, part of that stems from the fact that they are at least in basic agreement now on the idea that default would be catastrophic and that a compromise, a bipartisan solution is necessary. I would say most of the American public was probably already there before them, but they have gotten there now. But what, what is also the reason for some, a sense of optimism among some of the folks that I've talked to 
is the idea that the the tenor of the meeting, the 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 uh, you know, they folks felt like it was a more candid um, and a better conversation between the president more productive and, and McCarthy. meeting. You're saying is more, that what more, they felt more productive and uh, more conciliatory in some ways. That there was a sense that everybody wanted to get to an agreement. And, and mostly because it in contrast to what happened the week before. When you look at the week before, there was a pretty sharp disagreement between the president and Kevin McCarthy. I mean, Kevin McCarthy nearly called the president a liar in this meeting uh, as the president was talking about the fact that McCarthy wanted to cut veterans' benefits, a, a frequent talking point of the White House as they've been talking about that House Republican bill. That wasn't part of this conversation. And instead, it seems that both sides were trying to move beyond the talking points and actually get into this deal. Now, listen... They are just at the point where they're agreeing on what to negotiate about. They haven't actually started doing the actual negotiating, uh, or they are just starting to do well, that, no I rush. should say. Two weeks ago. <laughs> yeah. Two weeks ago. Uh, but this our, is Washington. Yeah, I know. Yes, we've seen this movie before. But are Democrats worried about the president? There, there's this big thing about, like, uh, the president won't negotiate. Uh, we were t- just last night talking about, why is that a bad word? The Americans actually want to see negotiation, but... Nevertheless, since the president has said he won't negotiate, are Democrats worried about what's it going depends on? What, it depends what that ultimate result looks like. And when you think back to 2011, when Vice Pres- then-Vice President Biden was one of the lead negotiators of that debt ceiling deal at the time, a lot of Democrats felt like he gave away too much. Like the Obama White House and Vice President Biden gave away too much in those negotiations. So there is a sense of uh, that fear that still exists today among some congressional Democrats, especially as you are starting to see them talk about things like work requirements for uh, some of these safety net programs. Now, the president uh, is part of the reason why they are having these concerns, because a few days ago he kind of left the door open to the possibility of uh, enhancing some of those work requirements. The White House quickly shut the door on the notion of work requirements for Medicaid programs, but they're still leaving themselves a little bit of wiggle room in the negotiating room to to negotiate more work requirements for some other programs. We heard from the Democratic Senator uh, Jeff Merkley, who voiced a concern about all of this. He said, quote, McCarthy is going to want a lot of things that are wrong for America. And I think the president needs to be thinking about what McCarthy says, knowing he has the option to say, what you're asking is unreasonable. It's going to hurt the American people. I'm elected to defend the American people, so I'm not going to let it happen. Your blackmail tactic will not succeed for anything. That's what I want the president to hear. I mean, that's what I want to hear from the president. Um, president Biden seems able to say that, right? I mean, isn't that sort of his style? Does Look, he, he did shut the door on the, on the Medicaid uh, work requirements notion. He talked about that uh, the, this morning. He talked about it yesterday. Um, so they are drawing a red line on that point. But at the same time, this is a president who recognizes that they're going to need to compromise. And, and increasingly in talking to folks inside the West Wing, you know, they, there is a sense that they're going to need to agree to things that they don't want, that Democrats don't want. And that is just the nature of compromise. It's also the same thing that I'm hearing on Capitol Hill. Uh, and there are people, some Democrats who have been criticizing Joe Biden for not negotiating sooner and waiting until the 11th hour to sit down in the same room with Kevin McCarthy. And it's scary. I actually do think, I think most of the time when we go through this, I mean, we go through this debt limit fight and this conversation almost every year. And they're always waiting until the 11th hour, but then a deal magically comes together. And I think a lot of people are hoping that will happen. Uh, this time, when I talk to lawmakers, they're not so sure. There's a bit of a difference. There's, why, there is a why difference. Why is that? Is it, be just be, is, that be, is it because of Congress in the sense of the way... There's a mix. I, like I McCarthy think, just doesn't have full control of... of Yes and no. I think more of it is the timing is really a deal like this normally takes months to come together. We are now two weeks away from June 1st. That is the deadline that the Treasury Department has said 
that the government could default on its debt. And even if they do reach a deal or an outline by the end of this week, which is what they're hoping to do, but it's a very, I think, ambitious goal, they still have to draft the legislation. Then they have to sell it to both the House and the Senate. Then they have to try to get enough support for it. That's a very, very big obstacle for them to overcome. And I do think there is that anxiety. The fact that Biden cut his trip short, I mean, is that, should we read anything into that? Is is that kind of a good thing? Like in terms of, is there some... It's it's a sign that this is a deal that's going to come down to Joe Biden and Kevin McCarthy, right? And so when you were raising Kevin McCarthy before in terms of why does this time feel different? That is certainly a part of it. I mean, he has, as we were talking in the previous segment, he has this very, very narrow majority He has a large segment of his caucus that sees that House Republican bill that they did to raise the debt ceiling and cut spending as a a floor, not a ceiling, but a floor for the minimum that they would like to see happen. And that's just not going to happen in these negotiations. I mean, I I think the turning point of all of this was when Kevin McCarthy was actually able to get a bill passed in the House, right? I think that was, you know, Joe Biden and Democrats never thought that they would actually, that Ken McCarthy with his slim majority could actually do that. What, it take 15 votes for him to become right. speaker, right? He was actually able to pull it off. And I think now Biden's sort of on his heels a little bit, coming back to the table, trying to figure out, okay, how much do I actually have to give away here? And at the same time, actually keep my caucus in the Congress with me with, you know, actually giving something to Republicans that McCarthy can actually sell to at least a decent chunk of his. I I spoke to one person uh, who's been involved in these negotiations, and this person basically said, look, as part of the calculus here, we are keeping in mind Kevin McCarthy's very slim majority, and we're also looking at what is the deal where Kevin McCarthy can afford to lose some of his caucus and Hakeem Jeffries, the Democratic leader, can bring some people on, right? That is ultimately the fine line that they are dealing with here. But Kevin McCarthy has a different calculus because he wants to stay speaker, and he agreed to some rules as part of becoming speaker uh, that will allow a very small number of members to jump in and put it up for a So, vote. like, what's the yeah. earliest we could see anything? Like, any kind June of... June 1st. I mean, I would say... <laughs> I, mean, you know, I mean, based but, on your... I mean, it's gonna, yeah. like... Yeah, what, I mean, I will date? say from my conversations, neither side wants to see the government default on it. That sure, you do have a handful of Republicans who are fine to have, you know, an economic catastrophe and blame it on President Biden. Uh... But by and large, nobody wants this. Um, So the will to do it is there. But it really is, I think, at this point, a timing question and also seeing which side will cave first, really, to get this done. All right. Well, something tells me we'll be doing this again tomorrow night. That's what I'm saying. Uh, That's why I was asking. Thank you for all that reporting. Uh, We have a little bit of news coming into our newsroom right now. Air raid alerts are being declared, uh, heard, across Ukraine where it is now early Thursday morning, Kyiv's air defense systems have been activated. The city's military administration says on Telegram, quote, the air defense is at work, remain calm, exclamation point, remain in your shelters until the air raid alert is over. We will bring you more information as soon as we get it into our newsroom. We're monitoring that. All right, meanwhile, back here, mass shootings have tripled in Texas in the last five years. At the same time, the state continues to loosen its gun laws. Shimon is going to talk about how the stats, give us the stats on how Texas has become the epicenter of this in the U.S. Five of the deadliest mass shootings over the past eight years have happened in Texas. The most recent was when a gunman killed eight people at a crowded shopping mall in Allen. Let's look at the map. Nine people killed in a Waco bar in 2015. 
26 killed in a church in Sutherland Springs in 2017. 10 killed in a Santa Fe high school in 2018. 23 killed at an El Paso shopping center in 2019. And of course, 19 children and two teachers killed at Robb Elementary School in Uvalde in 2022. On and on and on. Shimon is here. Shimon, can you give us the numbers? Is Texas the epicenter? I mean, look, there's certainly been a lot of attention and there's obviously been a lot of mass shootings. And when you look at that map, um, you know, we just had one there just, what, a few weeks ago in Allen. Um, You know, and for the majority of them, the guns that are being used in these mass shootings, they're purchased legally, right? Um, So when you look at Texas, yes, there are a lot of gun owners in Texas. 60% of households in Texas, um, gun owner. Um, Talking about 430,000 guns sold so far this year. And again, you know, we talk a lot about how loose the state of Texas is when it comes to gun rights. I mean, I was in... uh, the state capitol just a few weeks ago covering a hearing. I mean, there were literally people walking around there just open carry. Like, it's just allowed. And just to think that it was fine. It's perfectly fine. But what was striking to me was that they were around the family members from the Uvalde massacre who were there fighting for the change in the gun laws. Um, So that's what you're seeing in Texas. Certainly, you don't, you know, in the Allen, Texas shooting, this last mass shooting, that was a transfer kind of sale, right? It was like a personal sale, but really unrestricted in the state of Texas, no background checks. Um, And so that's what you're seeing time and time again in the state of Texas. It's just these loose Gun laws. And that's the, the culture, obviously, of Texas. And for people in the Northeast, it's it's hard. It's almost inconceivable for us because we have such a different culture. But in Texas, for decades, centuries, yeah. they have had a different um, relationship with guns. But does it correlate more guns? The, I mean, the numbers that you just said, yeah. the amount of gun sales, does that correlate to more mass shootings? So, honestly, I mean, if you look at the stats, right, when you look overall, you see that homicides are up, right? nationally, they're up 73%. Texas, they're up 90%. You know, a lot of the mass shootings certainly driving some of those numbers up. Um, But the thing is, it's really hard to know, right? Like, would stricter gun laws? I I don't, you know, who really knows? Do families and do other folks believe that? Yes, because, you know, certain individuals probably would not be able to get a hold of assault rifles. They shouldn't be able to do it. And this is something that you're seeing in Texas, where there was this push to raise the age, we've seen in Mm -hmm. other states where moving it from 18 to 21 Mm -hmm. to be able to purchase assault-style rifles. And in Texas, what you're seeing is the opposite. It's sort of like open carry, where in most states you have to be 21. In Texas, they said, no, you can be 18. Um, And certainly doing away with some of the restrictions you see in other states when it comes to handguns and open carry. What's the, what are, uh, I would say a few you? things. One, uh, you know, that push to raise the age limit from 18 to 21, popular in Texas. Uh, there was a recent poll done there, uh, showed I think it was like 76% or 74%, ridiculously high number. It's the popular. public likes the idea. Yeah, the public likes the idea, even in Texas. Uh, nationally, it's popular, 80% plus. And look, you don't have to be a genius to figure out that if you look the United States overall, how many you know guns per capita, you look at other countries, it tends to be far, far less. And we know that we have a lot more uh, homicides here. Uh, the other thing I'll, of course, note, you know, we're on, rightfully so, on the focus, you know, on, on mass killings. But the fact is, you know, there are a lot more gun deaths from other ways, right? You know, uh, suicides, obviously, a large portion of it. Uh, you know, individual deaths, you know, in urban centers. Uh, and so, 
you know, when we just think about this topic overall, we do know, we do know that the states where you do tend to have the highest number of killings per capita, right, we have to control for the population, do tend to be the states where, in fact, you have the highest number of guns in those states. Now, obviously, correlation does not equal causation, but I think when you look at those numbers, a wandering mind begins to... See, Harry's much better with the stats than I am. I kind of feel like we reversed roles tonight. (laughs) You know what, a little... Yes, no, you're working in tandem, which is fantastic. Um, Look, everybody, it's not a secret that other countries, when they come here to visit, say... Why Why do you have mass shootings here? There, people find it inconceivable I mean, in other countries because you know, they don't have this phenomenon. I, it's truly American. Having spent so much time as I have in Texas, I kind of, you know, I've learned so much about this country and certainly about gun rights and, and about folks' passion for carrying guns. And you really feel that in Texas. This is just, it's politics. It's their belief. It's sort of, this is why we're not seeing the governor there do anything. It's very easy. If he wanted this legislation to raise the age, he would do it, but he's made all kinds of excuses. I will say too, on just the foreign countries part, I mean, you look at the UK or Australia where I remember in the UK in the nineties, they had a horrible mass shooting. And after that, they acted, a conservative government was in power and they acted to tighten gun laws there. And you've seen in the in the years since gun you know, deaths go down as a result and similar things happening in Australia. And I think that's, I know from friends that I have abroad, like you said, and they come here and they're like, I don't understand. There's shootings that are happening every day here and they change the laws. You're not seeing those shootings there. And people say it's a mental health issue, but then are you saying they don't have the same amount of mental health? I mean, they also say it's our constitution. And they yeah, there it our is. Constitution, right. and that's what we hear all the time. Um, well, uh, Shimon, let's talk about what. Yeah. So it's been, you spent a year, basically, in Ubaldi, and everybody remembers your phenomenal reporting there, and everybody remembers your dogged questioning of the officials who were stonewalling and who wouldn't give you information. And you won the Peabody, the very mm-hmm. prestigious Peabody Award. We were all so proud of you. So now you are go- have this new special coming out this weekend. Yeah. We have a little preview of sure. it. Sure. Okay, uh, well. Yeah, we do. Okay, let's watch this, and you can tell us about it. I'm of the whole story. One year after the Uvalde massacre, the community still seeks answers. Now families have turned to CNN for footage Texas authorities refuse to release. I want to see everything that hurt my baby. The authorities should be the ones doing this for you. Do you think it will help you trying to heal? Yes, I will. We lost our daughter. We lost ourselves. We're just trying to pick up the pieces. The Whole Story with Anderson Cooper, Sunday at 8 on CNN. Okay, that looks intense. Probably the most th- intense thing I have ever done in my life and probably will be the most intense thing I will ever do in my life is to have to sit before mothers of little kids and show them video of the injuries and what their kids went through. Um, they came to me. It was They wanted to see it. They wanted to see it. We were in Uvalde working uh, on this special and we had a completely different path that we were going with this. And I get a call from one of the mothers and she says to me, we want to see the video. And I was just like, are you crazy? Like, I can't show this to you. It's so horrific. You had gotten it through a FOIA request? No, we got it through sources. This is the thing, that because the officials there have not released any information and they've not been willing to share any of this information with the families. And, you know, we went... It was a very painful experience, a very emotional... I mean, the mothers sat there and watched this video... 
and they saw their kids and the injuries. But for them, it was important to see because they were trying to get answers to certain questions. Um, one of the, the mothers, her, her, her little girl was passing out and she couldn't, no one ever told her that this was what she was going through and what she was suffering. She was um, a survivor. In other she's words. a survivor. Everyone that we show and everyone that we talk about is a survivor. Um, you know, we have some new information where there's a little girl from inside the classroom screaming for the police to come in. You know, the police don't hear her. And this is all captured on a 911 call. Um, so we played that. But it was um, just the most difficult because, you know, and I said this to folks is that we're not trained to deal with this kind of stuff. And I, I just didn't know what to do. And we made a decision um, to show it to them. And we sat there with them as they watched this. And their reaction, of course, there's some anger, but they were thankful. They were happy that they saw this. Um, and then we show some more video with another parent to show who, whose daughter, Chloe Torres, called 911 and sort of what she went through. It will, you know, people will find it um, Every time I watch it, and we've had to watch it a lot for editing and making sure that we cry. Like, it's just, you cry every time you watch it. And then we speak to um, parents uh, of a, a girl who, who died and just what their life has been like and how they describe just how horrible it has been to live without their daughter. And they're just waiting for the day that they could see her again. Meanwhile, they have like several other kids, but, you know, one of the things that I think is so different about what we're doing here is usually, you know, when you like Sandy Hook or other mass shootings, you go in, you do these stories, you do these documentaries, and you talk about the people's lives and what it's like, and it's horrible. Here we're actually giving people a window into what it was like for these kids that day yes. who survived because we have this video. And I think it's important for people to see what these guns do, what this day did to these people. And the fact also is that these families are still not getting the answers that yeah. they need and the services that they need. Yes, and with this, Shamar, I mean, we've made this point before, but it's so valuable. You didn't leave. You didn't just, you know, all the crews go in for, the, for this mass shooting, report on it, report on it, and then leave. You stayed, and you stayed to try to get them answers, and you stayed to be able to help them see the real yeah. story. And the fact that you're going to be able to bring it to all of us, um, obviously, it's hard to watch, but it is important. It's because so important. It I hope people watch. Yep. Yeah, Shimon, thank you for everything and for all of that. Thank you. Uh, make sure you tune in. Shimon returns to Uvalde in this all-new episode of The Whole Story with Anderson Cooper this Sunday at 8 p.m. right here on CNN. And we'll be right back. That's a 20 footer. 25. Three tons on them. You're going to need a bigger boat, right? <laughs> Spoiler alert they never get a bigger boat. But that boat was a lot bigger than the one a fisherman in Hawaii was in when he was attacked reportedly by a tiger shark. Oh! You guys are scared you're in the studio. Scott uh, Haraguchi managed to kick that shark away after it attacked his kayak. But with the sum- with summer around the corner, what's the truth about shark attacks? Harry is here with the shark data. 
Harry, you have shark data? He's a shark. Uh, we have data for everything else. He's a shark. Uh, look, I am a shark. Her. Uh, I got three <laughs> little me? interesting pieces of information I'm going to go through fast. Number one, uh, in fact, shark, unprovoked shark attacks worldwide. You know how many there were no. last year? How many? Look at this. Just 57. That's actually less than the 2017 to 2021 average when it was 70. But, but here's the whole thing. But we're still petrified of sharks, right? Always. So there was a very interesting Ipsos poll that was taken a few years ago that essentially asked, okay, are you terrified of shark attacks? Look at this. 51% say they're terrified and 38% said it makes them, sharks make them scared to swim in the ocean. My goodness gracious. And then... <laughs> Don't diminish my fears. Hold on, hold on. Here's the big thing. Jaws. Remember Jaws back in 75? Yes, you just played it. You just played it, right? Great little nugget from Jaws. They actually took a poll back in 1975, and what they found was seeing Jaws in 1975, did it increase your fear of swimming in the ocean? 35%. Of Americans said yes. 61% said no, but still that 35%. So why do we get so excited when there's like a shark sighting and like, you know, we all run to cover it and then they empty the beaches and everyone runs away and no one wants to go in the water? Because you just said you nearly crapped your pants in the studio. That's (laughs) why. Because shark attacks scare us. after 11. He's coming after me because I took time away from him. No, you're That's that's hilarious. Um, But but Elena, doesn't it seem like there are more shark sightings than shark attacks nowadays? Okay, so... I have a personal anecdote to oh. share. So I grew up going to Cape Cod every summer, and I feel like I was always there during Shark Week, and it was all exciting, and we'd have the shark trackers and whatever else, but we I never would it. see a shark. I, I think in the past several years, and again, this is based on no reporting whatsoever. <laughs> this is just personal Perfect. experience. There have been so many shark sightings, yes. and it's scary. So, what so what's that about? Aren't there more sightings now? No, there are not more sightings. They're uh, just covered more. Right. Yeah, Jeremy is very skeptical. That's what I was asking. What about you. the seals? So this is the thing in the Cape. The seals, like they, my grandparents have a little pond in there that connects to the ocean where the seals have been swimming in in the past couple yeah. of years and they never had had that Because it's, it's getting warmer, like something has right. changed. Right, that's what I was, that's so what I'm, I was just going to say, is there not the a global warming thing? I thought the sharks pushed them inland. Yeah. Uh, maybe, maybe it's oh, just that seals are trying to make you're the sharks look now, bad. You're in trouble now because you're now in like that's a shark. That's what I think that's is going on. No, no, the seals are trying to make the sharks look bad and that's what's going on. I think that's what we figured it out. We've just settled it. I mean, maybe it's a seal disguised as a shark. He went to Party City. Excellent. Land shark. All right. Thank you all very much, Harry. Up next, on the lookout, our reporters tell us what stories they're looking out for on the horizon and the sharks they're looking out for on the horizon. And we are back with our fantastic panel of reporters to tell us what stories they are keeping an eye on. We call it On the Lookout. Okay, Jeremy. All right, well, let's come back to what we were talking about before, which is the debt ceiling. And look, President Biden just arrived in Japan for this uh, now truncated foreign trip that he has. But look, the stakes are high on the world stage, and the president is going there now, having warned for weeks about what default would do to the United States and also to the U.S.'s reputation internationally. But it's not just defaults that affects the U.S.'s uh, reputation internationally. It's also just the very threat of default. And that's certainly going to loom over the president's trip. So what I'm looking out for is to see how much does this actually factor into the president's trip and what kind of a message of reassurance is he going to try and deliver to these allies at the G7 about the United States, about its creditworthiness going forward, and as the president says, that the U.S. is not a deadbeat nation, a nation that pays its debts. Can he show that there's been progress in these talks 
to not uh, to make sure the U.S.'s reputation isn't undermined. We'll keep an eye on that as well. Thank you for alerting us to that. Okay, what are you looking for, Elena? Well, we're still looking at the return of Senator Dianne Feinstein to the Senate, uh, and it's a tough story. I mean, she was out for nearly three months while struggling with chronic shingles, uh, and she returned. And there's been a lot of questions over whether she is fit to continue serving as a senator. She's 89 years old. She's had some health issues. Um, there was an incident this week where she was taking questions from reporters, and it seemed that as if she either stumbled or she mistook that she was gone. But long story short, there's a big question about whether she should resign if, if Democrats in the Senate and Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer should talk to her about this. Um, so it's something we'll be following closely. But I will say a lot of the lawmakers we hear from are saying it's her decision um, as long as she can continue her work. They hope that she can finish out her term. So we'll we'll keep an eye on that. Mm-hmm. OK, thank you. Shimon? Well, obviously, that's the story that so many are talking about today, uh, Megan and a different Harry. Mm. Uh, sorry. Um the more fallout. I think we need to know more about what what happened here. And I think we will. I think, uh, you know, New York City reporters and the tabloids are going to keep chasing this uh, to try and get more information. Were these these New York paparazzi or were they imported from London or something? There's plenty. So I've seen some video and it looks like New York because I've been out covering stuff and they look like similar, you know, people that I've seen. So I think majority probably were New Yorkers. So I think more information. I mean, there's some conflicting information at this point. Yep. So I think that's sort of what I'm looking for to okay. see more about. Harry, that. five seconds. I would just say Again. tomorrow is no dirty dishes day, which has never been a big problem for me because apparently I uh, have a wonderful dishwasher. <laughs> so I'm going Do to you stick those. at home? I, I eat at home, but I usually eat on plasticware anyway. But Come on. Anyway, but, you, you know, no dirty dishes. Okay. No dirty dishes tomorrow, folks. That's what we're oh, looking forward to. Wow. Okay, Your great. Harry, thank you. We don't leave used. this building, but okay. Yeah, exactly. Anyway. <laughs> All right, tomorrow on CNN this morning, famed chef Guy Fieri on the state of restaurants in America and how food can heal America's divisions. We need to see that. It starts at 6 a.m. Eastern. Thanks so much for watching tonight. Our coverage continues now. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking, Call Me Country, Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash callmecountry. Max subscription required.